today we're going to be looking at the book of Proverbs. There is a PowerPoint. I forgot to mention this in my first class, but there is a PowerPoint upload. Uh, you can open it up. You can get a notes view. I don't know what is the best way for how you want to do it. If you open up the actual PowerPoint, you can probably put notes in the notes section, right? Right? If you're if you do your computer notes, so and then they would match. So there's slides for pretty much everything that we're we're going to mostly cover today, I think. So the game plan uh, for this morning and this afternoon is the first portion of our time we'll be looking at kind of some background related issues, and by that I mean um, worldview issues, proverbs, the setting for it. Uh, at some point, we'll look at some of ancient Near East proverbs related to that. We'll look at some American English proverbs, just to get us on the, the same page, etc. And then the second portion of our time, we will be specifically in Proverbs. We'll look at the, the structure of the authors, how the book's organized. We will look specifically at, at a couple of the Proverbs. There's no way in a course like this that we can actually you know, drill down into all the, the different Proverbs, okay, 31. So we'll look at one, uh, maybe two, uh, probably 30 and 31-ish at the end. And I don't know if we'll do much in, the begin in, in between that. So that's probably all that we'll have time to get through. I do want to um, mention at the outset just a couple of references for you. If you want a, a quick reference, so we'll, we'll not be anywhere near as thorough, uh, but Derek Kidner is a highly uh, ranked, well-known scholar. Um, obviously, you can see the book's very small. So you can quick pick it up, quick reference, etc. Um, if you want probably top top dog, if you will, uh, probably Bruce Wolski. That's the two-volume commentary in the New International Commentary in the Old Testament series. And why is he probably top dog? Because he's been studying Proverbs for like 40 plus years. He did all the translation work on the NIV for the last 40 years. Started when he was much younger. The guy's almost 90 years old. Um, he's still teaching. I don't know him personally, but uh, I listen to his lectures. You can actually listen to all of his Proverbs lectures. They're online. Um, so he's an amazing guy, uh, amazing scholar. He also has written a commentary on Genesis, and a couple years ago he wrote um, a commentary, or it's not a commentary, a theology of the entire Old Testament. So that's what guys do at the very end, usually, of their careers. Um, and the reason is because they finally spent enough time, like 40 or 50 years, studying and teaching the Bible that they feel like they're, they're almost competent enough to be able to say something about how it all fits together. So, um, I give you that just for uh, resource sake. And um, I have no qualms in telling you that I will rely heavily upon him. He started a translation work. At the, uh, for the NIV back in like the 70s and the way they work is there's like some low level guys that do like all the translation work I shouldn't call them low level but anyway they do that and then it gets sent to a committee and then the committee reviews it and then that committee sends it to another committee and then there's the, the final thing where it gets you know approved and yes those are the notes we're going to use in you know, the study bible and that's how we're going to translate it etc so it's not just study notes it's the translation of how it actually reads 
tell that to say this. He started out at, at the bottom level in the each year, and he was promoted for whatever reason. So he never got off the proper's wagon, and so he was constantly. And so, like, they, the way they do that is, like, he would go for a summer, and 10 hours a day, he studied Proverbs, you know, in Hebrew, and coming up with the translation and, and all that. So he's done that for years. Um, actually, he says that he wrote his commentary on Genesis because he needed a break from Proverbs. <laughs> and so he did something else. But anyway, with that being said, <coughs> let's look at uh, Proverbs and wisdom and how this all uh, plays out together. So the first thing I want to look at this morning is wisdom and worldview. Because uh, we have to approach the book understanding what it's about and our expectations need to be in line with what it's about. Otherwise, we're going to come away with wrong conclusions. As a little bit of a review for you, there's a wisdom literature circle here. For the, the Hebrew worldview is centered upon God. And so the books of poetry or, or wisdom literature, technically speaking, only three of them are, are technically wisdom literature, but poetry or wisdom literature as we put them all and classify it together like this. Um, Psalms was last week, relationship with God. And today we're looking at Proverbs, society and family. Um, Proverbs are, are loved, just like the Psalms are. Um, but Proverbs deal with all sorts of aspects of life, the nitty-gritty, I mean, ev everything pretty much. And that's what we'll be looking at today. <coughs> so a worldview is your beliefs, your attitudes, your values that cause you to see things a certain way. It's a framework, the glasses, through which you view the world, and it can be verified and evaluated over time. Everybody has a worldview. You have one, I have one, every single person has a worldview. That's how you view the world. changes over time. When I became a believer in uh, 1993, when I was 18, college freshman, um, my worldview began to change because there was new things brought in. When I study the scriptures, my worldview changes. Hopefully, always more in line with God's worldview. Um, and so, when I study for this class, um, it changes because uh, I, I study more stuff. You know, I've, I've taught Proverbs before, so I take what I have, and then I go to my library of lots and lots of books, and I read more stuff, because I always like to learn more stuff, and I study more stuff. And so your worldview is changing as things are being put into it, and our job, our responsibility, is to make sure it's in line with the scriptures. <coughs> Some of the things that your worldview answers are these questions here. What's really real? What's the world around us? What's a human being? What happens to a person at death? Why is it possible to know anything at all? How do we know what is right and wrong? That's going to be a biggie. Okay? And what's the meaning of human history? And so worldview determines values and what's important in your life. Um, why are some people late all the time? something else is important to us, right? So I just, I'll speak for myself. So I'm sitting at home, I'm working in my office, I'm studying. But I need to leave for something because I have somewhere to be at a certain time, right? But I don't want to stop what I'm doing. So for me, obviously, what's most important? 
yeah, the studying that I'm working on, right? I don't want to stop, right? So I, I went towards the last minute. My son's like, why'd you take so long? I'm like, what do you mean? It's not even three yet. I'm within the window, you know? <coughs> so, or my wife's like, honey, you need to go now. <laughs> so, I am late sometimes to places. So, I wasn't trying to pick on anyone here. Um, those are the things that worldview answers. Now, I want to look at some scriptures, okay? When we come to the, the Bible, we need to understand that the things are divinely revealed to us. If you recall, probably the first week of class, we talked about our need for divine um, wisdom and guidance, and the fact that we're, we're sinners and we're simple-minded, we're easily solicited into sin, and we talked about the fact that God gives us uh, his revelation is how we get this divine wisdom and revelation. That's going to come up a lot today, all right? So all of these scriptures are on the next screen, okay? So if you don't get them all, but in a second, they're all on the next five screens. Okay, so look with me at what 1 Corinthians 2 4 to 8 says. It says, My speech and my proclamation were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a powerful demonstration by the Spirit, so that your faith might not be based on men's wisdom, but on God's power. However, we do speak a wisdom among the mature, but not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. On the contrary, we speak God's hidden wisdom in a mystery, a wisdom God predestined before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age knew this wisdom, for if they had known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Okay, so somebody tell me, okay, or several of you tell me, what do we learn from this passage about wisdom, where it comes from, and how, what I'm trying to say with worldview here? What's this teach us about wisdom? Okay, it comes from God. same chapter, for who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man that is in him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now, we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who comes from God, so that we may understand what has been freely given to us by God. We also speak these things, not in words taught by human wisdom, so there's one type, but in those taught by the spirit, explaining spiritual things to spiritual people. But the unbeliever does not welcome what comes from God's spirit, because it is foolishness to him. He's not able to understand it since it is evaluated spiritually. So here we see that we have a contrast. There is divine wisdom and there is human wisdom. And this is the contrast that is, is set up. So when we go to the book of Proverbs, which of the two is it? Yeah, we're going to assume, right? Because it's in the Bible, right? So we're going to assume it's divine wisdom, okay? So if it is divine wisdom, then that is going to uh, color how we see it. If you are... Uh, not a believer and you're coming to the scripture, okay? Well, you're not coming with, with divine wisdom or spirit-led wisdom, right? Because you're not saying you don't have the spirit. So, how you see it might not be the same. It's not going to be the same, right? Because you don't have the spirit to interpret what the spirit wrote. <clears throat> In Job 28, 12 to 14, it says, but where can wisdom be found? Where is understanding located? No man can know its value since it cannot be found in the land of the living. The ocean depths say it's not in me, while the sea declares I don't have it. So where, where do we get this wisdom from? 
We get it from God. We do. We get it from God. <coughs> Rick Walke says, I think it's later in my, in my slides, but we can repeat it because it's good. He basically says, <coughs> if I can paraphrase this properly, that the, um, the only way for you to have absolute certain knowledge and proper evaluation of something is for you to have complete comprehensive knowledge of everything. And who has that? Only God has that. Which means no person can ever have completely accurate, comprehensive evaluation of anything. Which is why things change, right? Books get edited. They get updated. Science changes. Theories change. Philosophies change. Okay? Because information changes. But God doesn't change. So, <clears throat> and in Proverbs 2, My son, if you accept my words and you store up my commands within you, listening closely to wisdom and directing your heart to understanding. Furthermore, if you call out to insight and lift your voice to understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it like hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. Who gives it? God gives it. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He stores up success for the upright. He is a shield for those who live with integrity, so he may guard the path of justice and protect the way of his loyal followers. So, The words of Agurus, son of Jekah, the oracle, the man's oration to Ithiel, to Ithiel of Ukol, I am more stupid than any other man, and I lack man's ability to understand. I have not gained wisdom, and I have no knowledge of the Holy One. Who has gone up to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his hands? Who has bound up the waters in the cloak? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What's his name? What is the name of his son? If you know, every word of God is pure. He's a shield for those who take refuge in him. We're actually going to come back to this passage. This is one of the passages we're going to look at at the end of our time together today. Um, it's kind of a very interesting passage, Proverbs 30. But um, the, the idea here is, again, um, do, does the ocean have all the wisdom? No. Do the, do the, the skies have it? No. Does man have it? No. Right? Where do we get this from? It comes from God. <clears throat> so there's two types of wisdom. There's the divine, and there is human. So back to 1 Corinthians, you notice that uh, Paul writing this contrasts, says, <coughs> My message of preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on man's wisdom, but God's power. And he says in verse 7, Though we speak of God's secret wisdom that's been hidden, and that God destined for our glory before time. So if there's wisdom from God, and God has hidden this wisdom, then what's the only way we're going to get the wisdom? It's got to reveal it to us. Right? Or shows us where it is. So, the wisdom. We don't want to be in the human wisdom category. So, humanism in philosophy is an attitude that emphasizes the dignity and worth of the individual. A basic pre premise of humanism is people are rational beings who possess within themselves the capacity for truth and goodness. All right? So, what I want to do is contrast okay, uh, a biblical worldview and a humanistic worldview. This would be categorized probably today as secular humanism, if you're into apologetics and worldviews. The term humanism is most often used to describe a literary and a cultural movement that spread through Western Europe in the 14th and 15th centuries. The Renaissance revival of Greek and Roman studies, etc. But the part in white, a basic premise of humanism, is that people are rational beings who possess within themselves the capacity for truth and goodness. Okay? <clears throat> so you know all this is on the slides that we got there. 
Underlying the difference between these two philosophies was the humanist deep conviction that society had outgrown older ways of thought. According to humanists, these ways of thought emphasized abstract speculation and relied too heavily on Christian teaching. Right? You need to understand where these things come from. Ideas have consequences. We are where we are in our culture because of the ideas of men who are mostly now dead, who have set in motion a system of thought that we are now seeing come to fruition. Many of the humanists were townspeople who were not directly associated with the church. These urban residents tended to object to an educational system that was largely monopolized by the clergy and oriented to clerical needs. Humanists were accustomed to the ever-changing, concrete activities of city life and found the rigid and closed system of abstract thought to be useless and irrelevant. In some, humanism reflected the new environment of the Renaissance. Its essential contribution to the modern world was not its concern with antiquity, but its flexibility and openness to all possibilities of life. So Voltaire, the French writer and philosopher, considered to be one of the central figures of the Age of Enlightenment of the 1700s, a period which emphasized the power of human reason, science, and respect for humanity. Now, if you just take those by themselves, like human reason, science, respect for humanity, those sound good, right? But it's what you do with them. It's, it's what you mean by that. You can have two people saying the exact same phrase, and they mean two totally different things, right? So if I say that I am... Um, choices and choose, what, what am I talking about? Someone else says that, they mean I, I can abort. That's not what I mean when I say it. Right? So, wh what are we talking about here? So, Voltaire <coughs> was one of these uh, guys who was a mover and shaker, one of, the, one of the early guys who pushed this idea and his influence is still felt today. The basic premise of humanism is that people are rational beings who possess within themselves the capacity for truth and goodness. Genesis 3.5. You will be like God. So, when we try to rationalize everything, this is one of the things that I've, I've come to, to love. Over the last couple of years, I've listened to, maybe just even a year, year and a half, I've listened to quite a, a few, and I've been reading more and more of Bruce Waltke's um, materials. And um, what I love about him so far is that one of the things is he just seems to be like saturated with the word and that we're not trying to rationalize everything. We're trying to exegete the revelation and because we believe in God and trust God, we're going to go with that. Now, he, he's a smart guy, so I mean, he looks at culture and, and other stuff, but I'm just saying not all about rationalizing anything. <clears throat> Romans 7.18 says, I know that nothing good lives in me. My sinful nature. Isaiah 53. Each of us has turned to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 3.19. The wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. And in 1 Corinthians 1.20. Where's the wise man? Where's the scholar? Where's the philosopher? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? So, th those are scriptures that are saying, um, no, our capacity for truth and goodness is nowhere near what you think it is. Um, Adam and Eve, the first people in the garden, and 
They are tricked into thinking that they are smart enough to figure out what is good for them. How they go? They blew it. You and I are not smart enough to figure out what's good for us. That's why we need the Creator Jesus into our lives. And this is what Proverbs gives us. Proverbs is that revelation from God that is to guide and direct. Man is the measure of all things, is what humanism says. He's at the center of everything and it solves his own problems. So the solution to man's problem is education. Okay, if you read anything on social problems and politics and, and the ills of society, what is the number one thing championed for curing all of society's ills? Education. Everybody's problem is they just need education. Similarly, the more educated you are, generally speaking, in our country, the less you believe in what? God. Which is why they make the joke that, you know, it's uneducated people that, you know, follow God. Now, that's obviously not completely true. All you got to do is look around. I mean, the, the people that uh, I refer to, Wolski, etc., these are PhDs who, um, they don't dabble in foreign languages. They, they read and study them and can work with them, okay, with multiple languages. Um, so these are not dumb people. And if, uh, if you're tempted or people are tempted to, to throw that out there, you need to be reminded of these. We've always had these, these top-notch scholar guys who believe in God. The world just ignores them. All right. The key to successful living is therefore getting more and doing your own thing. You measure success by outward material things. I, I did it my way, right? Your way might not get you what you want in the end. All right, Bing Crosby, if you please, I did it my way or something like that. Remember that song? No. Sinatra, I'm so sorry. Just blame the wrong guy. That's horrible of me. <laughs> Sinatra, that's what I meant. Um, <coughs> yeah. God says he's that he is the proper central focus of life. And life can have no real meaning apart from him. The solutions of man's problems are found somewhere in between beginning and the end of the Bible, or they're found in God's revelation. And so the point here is that God is the connection. We'll see this in the, the Hebrew worldview. God is the connection between all the aspects of your life, okay? He's intertwining it. He's, he's the puzzle piece in the, in the middle that connects all those pieces together. Additionally, the key to successful living is in meditation upon submitting to and doing God's will as revealed in his word. See this in Deuteronomy chapter six, verses forty-six. We see it again in Joshua one-eight. It's on the screen. The key verse for that, though, is Deuteronomy six forty-six. If you really want to know, you want to know what's the most important about raising your kids or the education system or all that. It's Deuteronomy six forty-six. That's where the Shema is found. Hear, O Lord, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then he goes on to say that from the time you get up in the morning to the time you go to bed in the evening, what should you be doing? You should be talking about the Lord all day. I don't know the circle you, you run in and the people that you see, but I mean th that's not what I see going on. You know, I, I see we're talking about everything else but most of the time. You know, and so that's a constant, a constant push, especially you know to to get young people to be thinking about those things instead of everything else. 
Uh, I'm just going to go through a few things that wisdom is uh, from the scriptures, but we're going to delve more into this in, in a minute when we get into the, the biblical aspects, okay? So wisdom is based on the fear of the Lord, all right? And Proverbs 1.7 is a key verse on that. Wisdom is the knowledge of God. One of the things you're going to see in Proverbs is there's a lot of uh, synonymous word usage about wisdom. Uh, wisdom is the power of God, the holiness of the Lord, and the love of the Lord. So all of these things are wisdom. All of these things are living in the revelation of God, you could say. And so we have one, we have one dread, to offend the Lord and one desire. That's kind of what it boils down to. So, to look at a couple of these uh, verses, wisdom is the power of God. Psalm 33, verse 8. Let the whole earth tremble before the Lord, that all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Why in awe of him? previously in verse 6 it says the heavens were made by the word of the Lord and the stars by the breath of his mouth he gathers the waters of the sea and the heat and he puts the depths in the storehouses so let everybody stand in awe of the one who can do that that's the power the holiness of the Lord in Revelation 15 and the love of the Lord in 1 Corinthians 12 <clears throat> so the fear of the Lord is based on the knowledge of God Proverbs chapter 9 verse 10 Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's the same as one seven, right? And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So this is. Remember, we talked about the parallelisms. What are the what are the three or four types of parallelisms? When you're looking at intelligence, got to know these things first. That's all. Synonyms is the first one, and that's where the second line is. The same as the first line. Okay, what's another one? Antithetic. Okay, that's good. That's where the second line is what? Opposite. Opposite. And? Synthetic. That's where the second line is. It adds. It adds it to me. So one's the same, one's opposite, and the, the synthetic adds. Okay, and then we have uh, the chiasms, right? Remember what those are? The inverted parallelisms. So A, B, C, and then back out B prime, A prime, all right? Or the X structure, depending on how, how you do them. So, why did I just bring that up? Because Proverbs 9.10 says, uh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Okay? And so, they're being put together. So, these things are similar. So, that's why it says the fear of the Lord is based on knowledge of God. The fear of the Lord is based on the power of God. Psalm 33.8, that's the one I just read a minute ago. The fear of the Lord is based on the holiness of the Lord, and Revelation 15.4, which was just up on the screen a minute ago. So let me go ahead and read that one to you. 15.4. Lord, who will not fear and glorify your name? Because you alone are holy. Because all the nations will come and worship you. Because your righteous acts have been revealed. And so here we see that the fear of the Lord is based on the holiness of God. We'll come and glorify his name. Holiness meaning separateness, the uniqueness, that there is nobody like him. The fear of the Lord is based on the love of the Lord in 1 Samuel 12. Alright? <clears throat> so, the law of awe. 
this leads to submission and, and worship. That's kind of what I call it. Actually, I came across this this week. Um, Walsky actually said something almost the same way. But this law of awe, I mean, it's this idea that there's this, this level of wow and, and respect um, that comes with understanding God. The importance of this, <coughs> Isaiah chapter 11. God values those who fear him, that's fear God, 
But then it, it said in the next line, what do we mean by this? They put their hope and faith in love. Really? So how do you get it? By observing the hand of God and the word of God and in personal experience. In other words, you need God to reveal himself to you. Right? And how does he reveal himself? The word. And also through life. There's, there's general revelation. There's supernatural revelation. But general revelation is what you see in creation. Special revelation is the scriptures or Jesus Christ is special revelation. Here's four things that, that need to be understood for the Hebrew mindset when you get to the book of Proverbs. Okay? First off, here, here's what they were all believing. That God created everything. So if you come to Proverbs, or the Bible, for that matter, if you come to it without believing God created, well, guess what? You're already outside the culture. So you're outside the culture looking in. So you're outside the house looking in through a window. You're not going to understand what's going on inside. Because you're, you've got a different worldview. Secondly, they understood order by God. Okay? Sovereignty. That he's in control. So if you think everything happens by chance and circumstance, well, guess what? You're outside the house again. You're looking in. You're, you're not going to understand. Rationality. By rationality here, I do not mean the same thing that the humanists mean. That you can reason your way to, to goodness. <clears throat> I mean that God didn't give us a brain. He gave us a brain to think. And with that, he, he gave us um, the ability to process and to use information and knowledge in a way that lines up with him to advance things. So we, we do have that ability. And the fourth one is the fear of, of God, the fear of Yahweh, the law of awe, which you're like, what's the law of awe? We'll go back to Ephesians 5. What's the law of awe, right? So why does this matter? Okay. When um, I was subbing for an English class, understand um, what's going on as, as the author of the poem makes references to things in the culture, right? This is, this is huge with, uh, with rap, right? If you don't know culture, are you going to understand rap music? No! Because that's what they talk about all the time, right? I'm talking about even like Christian rap, too. Isn't that what's talked about all the time? It's all this rap and rhyme about cultural issues, right? So, you won't understand what they're talking about. Same thing here. An atheist really cannot come to the scriptures and understand it. They can, uh, they can understand the surface level. They can analyze and dissect the words. But they can't get the spiritual understanding. They can't figure out how it fits together because they don't have the spiritual training. <coughs> so when you put it together, when you look at the, the Hebrew worldview of things, what you see is that <coughs> who is in the center? God's in the center, right? And he connects to what? He connects to every other aspect of life. All those other aspects. And that's what we need to understand. As a, as a believer in America, one of the things that we have to struggle and wrestle with is that. We've got to wrestle to put these pieces 
back connected to God. Because what we've done is rip them apart. And so you've got your, your God time. You know, you do your, your ten minutes in the morning with God and you say your, your bedtime prayers and maybe grace over lunch and go to church on Sunday and maybe a Bible study during the week. And there's, there's your American God piece. But it's not connected to anything else. And that is completely foreign to the biblical understanding of what God is doing. And for those of you that were in the Sunday. It's got to be during the week with, with who we're interacting with and what we're doing, right? So he's called some people to be Bible teachers. He's called, he's called some people to be lawyers who will go in and administer and fight for justice for people, right? He's called some people to um, be family counselors. Why? To bring God's word, not human rationality, the secular humanism, bring God's word to bear in a situation so that we can have peace and shalom in the family. You know, we adopted a nine-year-old in December. Um, yeah, we're trying to figure this out. Um, we, we didn't just have one, and he's suddenly nine. We adopted him. He comes with nine years of other stuff. Um, and so we're trying to figure out how does, how does God's word you know, work in this situation. And what do we do with it? And the cosmos and nature. Okay, so, you know, Genesis, creation. How, how does all this fit together, you know? Um, Etc. How do we take care of the earth? You know, Christians are historically great at saying, yeah, I believe God created. But historically, Christians have also been pretty bad at taking care of the creation. You know, that's one of the first mandates. Is, what, Genesis 2, 7 or thereabouts? This is the creation mandate. Like, we are to be the best environmentalists. It's our job to manage the earth, right? And, what, and we trash it, right? You're like, oh, that's, yeah, that's the problem. <coughs> the whole Bible. So, the wisdom style. So, the biblical wisdom literature differs um, from, I should say from, from the other genres by its unique vocabulary, style, subjects, and inspiration. Okay, this is what Bruce Walsky says. So the, the point here is when we get to the wisdom literature, we should expect some differences. Okay? Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes, in particular, that's the three primary technically wisdom literature books, right? It's not going to read the same way as the Genesis narratives and Joseph's story. You know, we love those stories, right? Everybody loves stories. This isn't going to read that way. Now, the first nine chapters does read a little bit uh, more like narrative. But chapter 10 through, like, the end, you got all these little, like, chunks of, of Proverbs all over, right? Some of them are just one-liners. Some of them are two or three. But, you know, they're all over. And, and they're not categorized for you, right? <laughs> they don't put all the ones about money together. All right. <laughs> so with that, I want to talk for a minute about inspiration. I don't know how, how much you think about stuff like this, but you ever wonder about the Psalms? You know, we talk about Psalms last week, right? But you ever wonder, like, what does it mean that the Psalms are inspired? 
Vancouver, but he just really made it. He's like training like he's off the job. I mean, well, how is that inspiring? Same thing with Travis. Like these, these are collective things, you know. Um, I don't want to oversimplify because you know, people listen to this person, but you know, sometimes I'll, I'll tell people, you know, they're kind of like God's horses cookies, you know. Um, I hope that when you go to the Chinese restaurant and get the horses cookies, you don't really think they're special cookies, right? So, but when God says them, they are, they are, right? Um, inspiration, how, how does this work? So unlike Moses, God did not speak to the sages. Sages are, are wise people who are giving out wisdom, right? So teaching the prophets, for example. Unlike the prophets, he did not give them visions and auditions. Um, rather, that auditions might be supposed to be dreams. I would have to check the quote. But the point here is that God spoke face-to-face with Moses. Okay? With the prophets, he gave them visions and dreams, right? And then he spoke to them primarily through their observation of the creation and of human behavior. Now he's talking about the sage or the wise person that puts together the Proverbs. So you have three different categories. Now, Bruce Walsky argues that these are three different stages of God's revelation. That with Moses, it's face-to-face. With the prophets, it's dreams and visions. With the sage, it is through their observation skills interpreted through their understanding of a covenant relationship with Yahweh. Does that make sense? That might not even sound like inspiration to you. It's more like, oh, I'm watching the ant and I'm learning something. Okay, so who created the ant? Well, God did. And who made the ant do what he does? Well, God did. And who created me? Well, God did. And am I a child of God? Yes. Okay, so what is God teaching me through this? And then you'll say, well, why does that make that inspired? Well, what is or what isn't? And that's up, that's up to God, not me. But um, that's kind of what he's saying here. He's saying that, that God works in different ways through these categories of both literature, the genre, and the time periods with the people. Okay? <clears throat> and this is, um, both this and the previous slide are, are, are Van Gemeren, is the quote in the bottom. That's the New International Dictionary of Old Testament uh, Theology and Exegesis, NIDOTTE, N-I-D-O-T-T-E, is the abbreviation. Um, but as I put on here, this, the article is written by Wolski, so it's still all coming from Wolski, okay? <coughs> so, to Moses, the lawgiver, he spoke clearly, giving us the Bible's legal literature. To the prophets, he spoke in symbolic dreams and visions, producing his prophetic literature. And the Spirit of the Lord spoke through David, Israel's singer of songs, giving us hymnic literature. God also inspired wise people, the sages, above all Solomon, who composed his wisdom literature. And isolated pieces, such as Psalm 41. Okay, so does that make sense, what he's saying about how God is revealing himself and using inspiration? Okay, so that's important for us as we wrestle or grapple with the nature of a proverb. Like, why is a proverb from God any better than a horse's cookie I got at lunch yesterday? You know what I'm saying? So Solomon takes us in his workshop as he drafts one of his proverbs. He says, I went past the field of the sluggard. Thorns had come up everywhere. 
and the stone wall was in ruins. I applied my heart to what I observed, and I learned a lesson from what I saw. On the basis of his observation of the sluggard's vineyard, and on his reflection, he coined the proverb. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come on you like a bandit and scarcely like an armed man. So, so what's he saying? He's saying, so he's observing life, this, this whole situation unfolding, and then he puts it into what became an inspired proverb. And we'll talk more about the definition of proverb in a minute, but you can see it's a compacted form of, of what he has observed there. And it's kind of memorable. The author of Proverbs reflects upon the creation and social behavior through the lens of faith. That's, that's what's critical to our understanding, this Hebrew worldview. So they're looking at it through faith. It's not just like um, a, a proverb that anybody just makes up. Top of the day, keep the doctor away, right? So... The faith enabled him to affirm a moral order that transcends observation and reflections, restricted to the sphere, quote, under the sun. We'll talk about under the sun next week in Ecclesiastes, but that's human life, right? So, here he consistently, I skipped that, he consistently uses God's name, the Lord, which signifies his covenantal relationship with Israel. So one of the things you have to understand in Proverbs is, and the whole rest of the scripture, it's a covenant book. Like, the book is written to God's covenant people. That's why someone outside the covenant, a non-believer, it doesn't make sense to them. They're not in the covenant. They don't have a relationship with the Creator, Father, God. Like they're outside the window. <clears throat> so, how does Proverbs contribute to the whole rest of the Scripture? There were other areas of life, not really touched by the Decalogue. Okay, personal diligence self-control, attitudes toward the poor, pride, trust in one's judgment, etc. In short, the development of responsible character over and above the goals of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, etc., form the heart of wisdom teaching. So what he's saying is this. Why did God give us Proverbs? Because these are topics that aren't touched on in other areas, like the Ten Commandments, etc. Or they're laid out only generally, and Proverbs gives us more specifics. Hebrew sages were not mere students of human nature or philosophers. Knowledge to them was not an end in itself, but only a means. Their contribution to Israel's life was counsel. Their aim was, by the aid of their tried maxims, the Proverbs, to so advise the inexperienced, the foolish, indeed all who needed advice, that they might live the fullest and best lives and successfully attain all worthy ends. While their teaching was distinctively ethical and religious, Does that make sense? Okay, y'all with me on that? All right. So we're, we're forming the the theological way worldview in which we're approaching the Book of Proverbs. The proverb was the most characteristic literary form in which the sages treasured and imparted their teachings. Poetical in structure, terse, short, compact, often figurative or epigrammatic, the proverb was well calculated to arouse individual thought and make a deep impression on the mind. Transmitted from mouth to mouth for many generations, like the popular tradition or law, it lost by attrition all its unnecessary elements so that, like an arrow, it shot straight to the mark. So it got rid of all the extra stuff that's not needed, you know? So take everything out of the story except the one main point, you know what I'm saying? 
Based on common human experience, it found a ready response in the heart of man. In this way, crystallized experience was transmitted, gathering effectiveness and volume in each succeeding generation. Job 8, 8 to 10, speaks of this accumulated wisdom handed down from the former age, that which the fathers have searched out. They shall teach man and inform him, and utter words out of their hearts. Job uh, 15, 18 also refers to that which wise men have told from their fathers and have not hid. So you have this generational discipleship. Same thing you have in uh, 2 Timothy, right? Teaching the four generations that's in that passage. A proverb thus orally transmitted not only gains in beauty of form, but also in authority, for it is constantly being tested in the laboratory of real life and receives the silent attestation of thousands of men of many different generations. So that last thing, let me make a comment on He's saying at the, the last part there is that the fact that the proverb is still being repeated 2,000 years later means that it's tried and true. Like, people have been repeating it for 2,000 years. They've also been trying and testing it out. And the reason they keep repeating it is because it's true in real life. Otherwise, they wouldn't stop using it. <coughs> All right. So, what are some contemporary proverbs? So, the point is, we have Proverbs. 
Okay? Now, ours might not be inspired, but we have Proverbs. They're true to life. They're, they're real. doesn't mean they're false just because they're not inspired, right? It just means they're not in the Bible. They're just not revealed from God, right? So, they're still true. All right? Or they, still, they could still be true, right? So, modern Proverbs. So, now we want to look at um, some Proverbs in the ancient Near East. Okay? Those are contemporary. So now let's go back many, many, many years. Um, there's several different uh, collections that have been gathered up. Most of uh, our, our wisdom literature, and as far as the Proverbs go, is connected to Egypt. So there are, there's the wisdom of um, Amenemhet, which, you can't read that, Tyler. <coughs> I'm just going to show you a few people that we have stuff from, and then I'm going to show you a couple that have been translated. All right. There is um, Amenhotep, who is ascribed to Amenhotep III, who was a ruler. <coughs> and then we have Amen Amopi, and this here is a chart showing the comparison or similarity with Proverbs chapter 4. And so, one of the things we'll realize as we look at the Proverbs is that it says that Solomon collected Proverbs. Well, where did he collect them from? And this also gets, gets a little tricky with the idea of inspiration also. So, well, Solomon seems to have had a very close relationship with Egypt. Okay, we'll talk about that in a little bit. That's a little bit problematic in its own right. And so, a lot of these may have come out of the Egyptian culture, which would explain why there's such close parallels. So, this is why I included those comments from Bruce Wolke about inspiration and what's going on with, with these proverbs. So, if you ask um, someone outside the faith, if you will, or someone who's just unsure, why are there these parallels? Right? So, this is back to the stuff we talked about in our backgrounds class, right? So, many will say, well, the Bible just ripped them off, right? They're not inspired, they're nothing. Like, he stole them from Egypt. You know, not only are they not inspired, he stole, you know? So, they're doubly bad. Well, that's not necessarily the case. <coughs> there could be the, um, I don't want to phrase that, uh, a common cultural understanding that's already in, uh, already in the culture, and yes, like they can have the same, like the culture in Egypt and the culture there was similar. But then when it is viewed as in the, under the perspective of God, all right, then that becomes slightly different. So the difference in these is that the God of the Egyptian wisdom isn't named. And so what that means is that in the scriptures, these proverbs are directly related to, to Yahweh and what he's doing in the world. <coughs> particularly through and with his covenant people. You don't have that aspect in the Egyptian uh, literature. So over here on the left side is the Egyptian ones. Incline thine ear to hear my sayings and incline thy heart to their comprehension, for it is a profitable thing to put them in thy heart. Um, bow thine ear. I love that even the Egyptian translations are like King James. So bow down thine ear and hear the words of the wise and apply thine heart unto my knowledge for it is a pleasant thing if you keep them within thee so I mean you can just read all these obviously they're parallels that's why they're on the chart so 
We're going to say the same thing, basically. Both. So this teaches us that there's a lot of this common wisdom literature floating around. All right? Better is poverty in the hand of God than the riches in the storehouse. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasures and trouble. from one of Sennacherib's advisors. If you know the Bible story, you know Sennacherib played the role in the defeat of Israel. So, if you look at Proverbs 20, 20, it says, If a man curses his father and mother, his lands will be snuffed out in pitch darkness. Ah, Ahikar says, Those who do not honor their parents are cursed by the gods for their evil. Proverbs says, He who spares the rod hates his son. Spare the rod, spoil the child. Let me ask you, which one did most people have memorized? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, you see, like, which ones of these don't come from the Bible? Let's spare the rod, spoil the child, is on there. Yeah, that's not how it's phrased in the Bible, right? But that is how it's phrased in the, the literature of the Near East. And then, through patience on a ruler, uh, through patience a ruler can be persuaded, and a gentle tongue can break a bone. And then a gentle is the tongue of a king, but it can break a dragon's bones. So you can see the similarities between these. Alright? I think that's the, the last one. So contextually, Solomon collected sayings. Okay? 22.17 says this. <coughs> we may bring it up again later, but let's just see. It says, listen closely and pay attention to the words of the wise and apply your mind uh, to my knowledge. down to verse 30. Haven't I written for you 30 sayings about counsel and knowledge in order to teach you true and reliable words so you may give a dependable report to those who sent you? So, uh, if you're taking notes, click, click all the way down to verse 20. This is what he actually says to Yehudah. So that your trust may be in Yahweh, verse 19. I have instructed you today even so that your confidence may be in the Lord. The Lord, all caps, probably in your translation, Yahweh. So why is Solomon writing this? Because he's trying to encourage a trust and a lifestyle in Yahweh. Okay? The sayings are anchored in Yahweh, even if collected from or adapted from wider ancient Near East cultures. Theologically, so that's contextually, theologically, fear of God refers to God's general revelation to all people, especially through conscience. Okay, now this is a distinction that Bruce Wallace will make. Okay? Um, and maybe elsewhere, I haven't, I haven't seen it elsewhere, but I haven't really tried to search for it. Walsh makes a distinction between fear of God and fear of Yahweh. Okay? Yahweh being the unique individual personal name of God, God being the more general term, right? Fear of God refers to God's general revelation to all people, especially through conscience. Okay, that would line up with Romans, right? That God works through our conscience. Fear of Yahweh refers to God's special revelation to Israel. Where fear of Yahweh agrees with the fear of God, agreement would be expected. This is the point. This is why he's even talking about this distinction. The rule of Yahweh is the primary difference. And so, does that make sense to you guys? Or do I need to clarify that? So what he's saying is that in other cultures, if, if they see something and they write a proverb, okay, that's a fear of God. Okay? The general revelation. So I talked earlier about general revelation versus special revelation. So that's general revelation. You see it through creation, right? 
and everybody also has conscience. So everybody has creation to look at, and everybody has a conscience that God gave them. And those things, according to Romans 1, are supposed to indicate to you that there is a God. Okay? You won't learn Jesus about it, but you'll learn there is a God. He's a creator God, and you should fear him. Okay? And if you seek after him, he'll reveal more light to you. But in addition, there's the fear of Yahweh. The fear of Yahweh is the special revelation, not general, that God gave to his people, Israel. So it's the, it's the rule of Yahweh. Um, very interesting, if you if you uh, go peruse or pick up Wall Street theology, the Old Testament books, one of the things you'll notice right away is that the, the chapters are all about a gift. Every single chapter is titled, The Gift of Blah, Blah, Blah. And the majority of them deal with uh, I am. And he repeatedly uses I am through the entire book. So I don't know that I've really read anything else that is so consistently like, the I am is Yahweh, right? Clearly, it's just I am, right? So um, through, all throughout here, everything is about I am. Uh, and so that's where this is coming from also. Get this. All right, so Proverbs. Let's look now at the biblical Proverbs. <coughs> Got a little bit of an understanding of the worldview going into it. Um, some ancient Near East examples. Now I want to see what's God actually have to say. And so let's jump into Proverbs uh, chapter 1 and verse number 1. And what do we get when we get there? We get the Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. So there's a bunch of stuff we learn just from the title itself. We learn about the author, which we'll talk about in just a second. But the second word in English, the Proverbs, okay? And so that is where we, we get the title from because that's what they're called, these, these idea of, of Proverbs, which obviously makes us ask, well, what are the Proverbs? So if you go to a regular dictionary, Merriam-Webster, a brief popular saying such as, human cooks spoil the broth. That gives advice about how people should live or that express a belief that is generally thought to be true. Um, if you study or go look at a bunch of different scholars on, on Proverbs, you will get some similarity, but you'll also get some, some differences. You'll get the same thing if you look at what wisdom literature is. So um, McCain and, and this other guy, they, they base what a proverb is on the etymology. The, the word comes from a word that means comparison. So he's comparing things. Um, and, and call it a literary model or analogy constructed for the purpose of conveying a model, an exemplar, or a paradigm. Walty has something a little different. So if you read his, his material, like I said, he's got a two-volume commentary on the Proverbs. And then in his theology of the, of the Bible, the Old Testament actually, uh, he, he talks about it in the Proverbs sections as well. So the benefit of, of Walty is that, not that I think he's infallible, okay, but the benefit of him is, like I said, he spent more than 40 years, like, tearing apart the Hebrew text, the Proverbs. So, um, his is listed there, and it says, a poetic, I don't even really know the proper pronunciation of the next word, right? Um, Apophagam. I listened to him in a lecture one time, and he said it wrong four times before he got it right. So um, that's why I made up a new one on the bottom, because I've never heard that one. Uh, that has currency among those who fear. 
Okay, and then he defines that word in there. So I, I think that, no offense to him, but if you have to define the word that's in it, then we probably need a new definition, right? So it's a short why saying that helps Yahweh's children follow me. Okay, that's my simplistic boom, right? So a short why saying. And so when he's talking about short, pithy, that's what we're talking about, short. So why saying, and, and the goal is to help God's children, Yahweh's children, the covenant family of God, follow after God, all right? So that's what we're dealing with. <clears throat> So that's what the book of Proverbs is. All right? What's the purpose? To become a student of Yahweh's wisdom and to learn to navigate through life successfully. Now, obviously, I've already studied a bit and pulled that out of it. We'll see how that is true in just a minute with chapter 1. To help one choose the best course of action among the possible choices. The wise way should be followed and the foolish way avoided. One of the things that I think God wants us to do is learn how to properly navigate through life. The, the purpose continued is to focus on two things, M&M, the moral and the mental, okay? To teach skillful living, the moral, and skillful decision-making, mental. We're going to break both of those down in just a minute. Wisdom and its synonyms occur 101 times in Proverbs. What does that tell you? It tells you that it's significant. It's about wisdom. It shouldn't surprise us, right? It's wisdom literature. Wisdom, the word is hakma occurs about 150 times in the Bible. So, more than half of them are in Job, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes, which is the wisdom literature, right? Makes sense again. <clears throat> so, what happens if you study it? Well, two things, all right? Um, personal growth, that's what's supposed to happen. Maturity, all right? Which, that's what James talks about. James is the New Testament counterpart for wisdom, right? James is the, is the New Testament wisdom book, if you will. Um, he, his whole book is about becoming a mature Christian, lacking nothing, right? And he talks about wisdom. If you lack wisdom, ask God. And helmsmanship. Helmsmanship deals with how do you steer the ship? How do you steer your life? How do you navigate through the pitfalls of life or through the uh, potential pitfalls? Because that's the goal is not to be in the pit, right? Um, although, if you're in the pit because of someone else, like Joseph, God is sovereign, right? Back to our, our Hebrew worldview thinking, right? He is sovereign, and he is the great overrider. <clears throat> he could turn bad into good. Went the wrong way. All right, so um, the other thing is the word life. I just want to make a couple comments on life in, in Proverbs. When you come across the word life in Proverbs, um, there's two things you need to think about. Uh, it is possible that he is only talking about your physical life. But much of the time, uh, Walsky would argue that they're talking about something much more. They're talking about life beyond this life. Okay, so there's this eternal life aspect, life with God that is being referred to, or sometimes simply inferred. But <clears throat> Here's a quick outline for you. This is not a detailed outline. This is one of those outlines just so you can wedge it into your head, all right, and, and remember it. You know, the first nine what wisdom is. The rest of it, the practice of it. Okay? Or you could say the what and the how, right? The what and the how. Now we're going to look at a different structure in a minute, but that's just... <coughs> that's how, by the way, if you study like the New Testament epistles, it's the same thing that you learn there. The first half of the book is usually doctrine of belief, right? How 
we should believe, what to believe, and the second half is behavior. Okay, so again, that's that's kind of the what and the how. Same same thing that you have in the book of Proverbs. With that being said, let's go to the more complex uh, chart of the the layout, right? All right, so here what I have for you all in one chart is the authors and the structure of the book, okay? There are seven main collections. Um, some list eight, but there's seven main collections here to the book of Proverbs. Now, remember, these are, are sayings that were collected and then put together. Just like when we talked about the book of Psalms, and it is structured in a certain way in the canon, right? You've got the five books of the Psalms that were orchestrated a certain way, and they kind of follow the history of Israel. Okay, well, someone put those together. They weren't written that way. Like, they were written at different times by different people, right? Same thing with the Proverbs. They're written by a bunch of different people, and as we'll see in a minute, they're collected and put together, and they're organized in a certain fashion. Now, if we were redoing it, we would probably organize most of them by top, by surplus, right? Because it would make it much easier to find a resource chapter on money, right? But that's not what they did. So, collection one, all right? You can see where the breaks are and the chapters. Okay, so 1 1 to 9 18 is, is collection one. It's, it's by Solomon. Collection two is by Solomon. Three and four are probably by Solomon also. They have an asterisk because if you do some other reading, uh, you may see people point out the fact that it actually says um, the words of the wise. It doesn't say Solomon's name on them. But as Bruce Welty points out, there's a little problem if you don't think it's Solomon. Um, there is an there's I statements in 22, 17 to 21. And so who's the I? If it's not Solomon, there's no there's no other antecedent. There's no other person referred to prior to that the I could refer to, other than Solomon. So he would argue that the whole first four collections are are um, Solomon, and then uh, collection five is Solomon, uh, but they're collected by the men of Hezekiah. Six is uh, just one chapter, uh, Agur, we'll talk about him, and then King Lemuel's mother, chapter 31, okay, about the wise woman. I've also um, noted in this chart that the wise woman is uh, collection seven, if you read backwards with me, collection six is larger couplets, so we're, we're saying it's not just single verses, it could be like a whole paragraph type of thing. Um, from collection five all the way down to two, so two to five, they're mostly one verse maxims. So that's why if you're reading them like all in one sitting, you know, they can have to jump around all over the place, right? You got money, anger, lips, mouth, this, that, whatever. Um, and then collection one covers several things. You've got the title in there, one, one. And then one, two to one, seven, okay, the, the preamble. And then one, eight uh, to the end of, I think, chapter one or so is the prologue. And then you've got the purpose in there. And then you've got the personification of w wisdom, the lady wisdom. Okay, personified. So all of that is in the first section. So it's a little bit more um, prose or narrative, if you will, in the first uh, section in contrast to the rest of it. Does that make sense to you all?
So the timeline, the timeline of Proverbs. So if we're, we're looking at Proverbs, and who did we just say um, collected and or wrote a whole bunch of them? Solomon. So we're looking at the time frame of Solomon. We want to know when were these written, what's going on? And this is benefit, beneficial for a couple of reasons. We've already looked at some um, similar Proverbs from Egypt, so we want to know time frame. All right? And when you look at the time frame, when was Solomon around, when were these in Egypt around, you see they overlap quite a bit, so it makes sense that you would have uh, similar things being said. Similar to in our backgrounds class, when we look at the Hittite treaties, the Hebrew and Vassal treaties, and then you look at how portions of Exodus or Deuteronomy are structured, that they map the same thing going on in that whole um, Eastern uh, context. So you got basically the 900s, okay, is what you're looking at here, where Solomon is king, okay, 970 now to 930, and then... Israel divides into a northern and southern kingdom there. And then over here you've got the conquering of Israel and Judah. So we're talking about over here. Okay, if Hezekiah's men, if they're collecting stuff, then we're moving down over here, right? Hezekiah reigns. Remember that most of um, most of the land for Solomon's reign was captured previously by who? seashore. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the people of the east, greater than all the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than anyone, wiser than Ethan, the Ezraite, Heman, Pelka. Okay, so you don't know who these people are, but the fact that they're written in here tells you what? Not only that, but who knew who they were? 
Yeah. At the time that, uh, what are we reading from? Kings. At the time that Kings is being written, like, they know who these people are, right? And so Solomon is wiser than all these people. His reputation extended to all the surrounding nations. Okay, so it's well known. Remember, the Queen of Sheba comes from Egypt, right, to visit him. He composed 3,000 proverbs, and his songs numbered 1,005. Well, we don't have 3,000 proverbs, right? So we don't have everything he wrote. And they collected stuff, right? So there's more. Um, Proverbs 2.6. The Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. So this answers the question, and I think we actually had this verse earlier, about where do we get wisdom from, right? Comes from God. The Lord made me wisdom. This is the personification of Proverbs 8. This is the woman wisdom. At the beginning of his creation and before his works of long ago. So why do we seek out wisdom? Because remember what Bruce Walsky said. In order to know for sure, you need how much knowledge? All the knowledge, complete and comprehensive, right? Well, there's no person that had that because no one was there at creation, right? But Lady Wisdom was there at creation. So if you want to have any idea of what is really real and how, how to live your life, then go see Lady Wisdom. Like, stop, stop trying to see every other woman. Go see Lady Wisdom, okay? Of course, Lady Wisdom is the personification of, of Yahweh's wisdom. <coughs> All right. So this brings us to um, kind of a side question that I've thought of and maybe some of you have. So if Solomon was so wise, what's his deal? Why does he have a thousand women? Why does he end up with a divided heart that leads to a divided <coughs> kingdom and he gets ripped out of his hand and gets judged by God? Well, Walsky would argue, and I would have to agree with him, um, because this is how he's going to listen. Right? Are we like that? Do we, ha do we have stuff that we know, wisdom, that, and we don't put it into practice? We didn't apply it, right? So, and there's some reasons why he got sidetracked, okay? But Proverbs 19.27, Stop listening to instruction, my son, and you will stray from the words of knowledge. Okay, so what did Solomon do? He stopped listening to instruction. And when we say instruction, we mean instruction of who? Stopped listening to the instruction of Yahweh. And so what happened? He failed. He wrecked his life. Midlife crisis. <coughs> Watch this. This has a handout, but I don't think I'm going to do a handout. <coughs> but look at this. Okay, so what kind of structure is this? Very good. Chaotic structure. This is from uh, Kings, okay? <clears throat> what I want you to notice is that this is about the life of Solomon, okay? So in a chiastic structure, just as a, on a hermeneutical note here, what you have is, is each set, each pair are, are related somehow, okay? So you have the beginning and the end. You have the, the prophet speaking. Now remember, the prophets are God's cops, okay? They're the covenant keepers. So God speaks to the prophet, and the prophet speaks. So he's speaking the words of God. So you have this, this portion of, uh, of Kings here <coughs> starts and ends with God speaking, okay, through the prophet. In the first one, it's because there's a, I guess it's a war, 
This is a war over who's going to become king after David, right? So the prophet intervenes. It'll be Solomon, right? Solomon eliminates threats to his security. His early promise, early promise of his reign, things are looking good, right? We're going to have a, a nice kingdom, right? Preparations for building the temple. Okay, temple's going to get built. David saved up all the money. We got blueprints, right? He couldn't build it, but we're going to build it now. He begins to build the temple. All right? Then he starts to build his building. This is the turning point in, in this in this chiastic structure that's the pivot or the hinge. How, how long did he spend building his building? That's where I should point. Then he goes three times more buildings for himself. And they're a much grander Alright? So what happens? He got waylaid. Okay, if you you come back out from the chiastic structure, he completes the building of the temple, he dedicates the temple and is warned by God, uses wisdom for himself, Tragic failure of his reign raises up threats to his security in contrast to eliminating threats to his security, and a prophet determines the royal succession. The prophet shows up again, the voice of God. Solomon. You haven't followed me faithfully. You've been led astray. How have I been led astray? You read through some of the things. You read in the, in the passages of Scripture. I don't know if I have the reference written down. When Solomon... When his kingdom is talked about, it talks about the horses that he got from Egypt, and it talks about how many chariots he had. You have to go back to Deuteronomy to find out. God forbade the king to get horses from Egypt. He forbade his people from going back to Egypt after they were freed. And so when the when the narrator of Kings is telling us that Solomon has all these horses and chariots, what they're telling us is he broke Yahweh's covenant. When we first read that, we're like, oh yeah, yeah, he's rich, he's rich, he's rich. And you, you got to go back and see in Deuteronomy the parallel. It's, it's the phrases, the words they use, those are the connections that we often miss. Either because it's in English, or because we don't know the rest of the story. So, because of that, alright, he he broke it. So the preamble, all right, so now we move past verse 1, all right, we're going to actually get into verse 2 maybe. Um, so T.S. Eliot said, where's the wisdom we have lost in knowledge? Where's the knowledge we have lost in information? Okay, our, our technologically focused culture seeks to dissect and disconnect, whereas the biblical view seeks to reconnect all areas to God. Righteousness is all about being rightly related to God and all of his creation, people and planet. Now I want you to... Uh, key in on that on that phrase about righteousness. That's going to be important in, in the book of Proverbs. It's actually a key aspect in Proverbs about this idea of, of righteousness, people being rightly related to both God and his his creation, everything. Uh, Shalom, I think, is a similar word that you could probably kind of use in that context. All right, <clears throat> the text, finally. All right, so the preamble. Says to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction and prudence and righteousness, justice and equity, to give prudence to the non-committed, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise listen and add to their learning, and let the discerning get guidance. To understand proverbs and parables, the sayings of the wise and the little, the fear of the Lord, to give knowledge and wisdom and instruction to fools and wise. Okay, so why do I have those uh, words underlined and highlighted four times? 
This is telling us what the Proverbs are all about, what they're supposed to accomplish in your life and in my life, in, in the preamble here. So the, the function here is these are the things, to know and to receive, to, to give these things, to understand that you would become a wise person, that you would take this in and that you would learn how to live it. Now, it's also structured chiastically. And when we look at the chiastic structure, okay, what you find is that right in the middle is this idea of righteousness, justice, and equity. All right? To know wisdom and instruction. Wisdom and instruction down here. Understand words of insight. Understand Proverbs and parables. Prudent behavior. Prudence. And right in the middle is righteousness, justice, and equity. And so, again, that hinge point, that, that turning point is a, a focus of this. So we're going to break it down. We're going to come back to that, that middle point. But we're going to break it down with starting with verse 2a. <coughs> this is the idea of moral acumen. I mentioned uh, the moral and the mental earlier. So 2a, talking about the moral. To know. To know in, in uh, the Proverbs and even throughout most of Scripture is this idea of experiential knowledge. It's not just information. Information is not enough. So the, the writer is saying that to, to know wisdom and instruction not just the information, to be able to live this out, to experience this, to, to put it into practice, to live this out, is what the goal is. Um, in addition, is the idea of wisdom. Right? Wisdom <coughs> is actually very broad. Um, it's actually used, if I'm not mistaken, regarding the serpent. The word crafty. So it could be used negatively or Wisdom has to do with all of these different aspects in Scripture. So, for instance, with the age of technology and art, in Exodus 28.3, it says, Tell all the skilled men to whom I have given wisdom in such matters that they are to make garments for Aaron for his consecration, so he may serve me as a priest. So, this is wisdom God has given. It's being used to make clothes. In Exodus 31, verse 2 to 6, um, talking about God has filled these people with the Spirit of God with wisdom, understanding, knowledge. Aren't those all the same words that we just read in Proverbs? Um, to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze. To cut and set stones to work in wood and engage in all kinds of crafts. And so this is for artistic aspects. So it's, it's wisdom in artwork. Um, of the arts of magic. In Exodus 7.11, Pharaoh summoned wise men and sorcerers and the Egyptian magicians did the same things by their secret arts. So you have the, the same word being in, being used in there. These magicians, these uh, these wise men, okay, are able to use what they have for the negative in this case, right? Um, to govern. Deuteronomy 1, uh, 12 to 16. How can I, Moses, bear your, Israel, problems and your burdens and your disputes all by myself? Choose some wise, understanding, this is both words, right, and respected men from each of your tribes, and I will set them over you. So there's uh, the word again. In 1 Kings 3.28, when all Israel heard the verdict the king had given, they held the king in awe because they saw that he had wisdom from God to administer justice. So what we're seeing is that wisdom is, is not this very small, limited um, domain, okay, but it's actually much, much larger 
I could go on with multiple more passages, to wage war. In Isaiah 10, verse 13, he says, By the strength of my hand I have done this, and by my wisdom, because I have understanding, so again, you see wisdom and understanding paired together, I removed the boundaries of nations, I plundered their treasures like a mighty one, I subdued their kings. Also in 1 Kings 4, 33-34, and 2 Samuel 14, 20, my Lord has wisdom like that of an angel of God. He knows everything that happens in the land. Of um, the ability to answer questions, 1 Kings 10, 2-3, she came to Solomon and talked with him about all that she had in her mind, and Solomon answered all her questions. Nothing was too hard for him to explain. And then of overcoming limitations, um, four things on earth are small, yet they are extremely wise. So small, um, but wise. Ants are creatures of little strength, yet they store up their food for Sunday. Hyraxes are creatures of little power, yet they make their home in their crag. Locusts have no king, yet they advance together in ranks. Lizards can be caught with a hand, yet it responds with intelligence. So they, they overcome this, this small thing that is a characteristic of them. And the next one is enjoying the abundant life. Um, chapter 13, verse 14 says, The teaching of the wise is a fountain of life, turning a person from the snares of death. So, the teaching of the wise is a fountain of life. Again, that word life that we mentioned, probably more than just your physical life. There is something future that is going to come for following after God's wisdom. You can look at chapter 22, uh, 21 also. Um, so, in the book of Proverbs, wisdom is the religious and ethical quality in the state of knowing um, what conforms to reality with truth and wisdom. So, it comes from God. Alright? The religious and ethical quality in the state of knowing what conforms to reality, truth and wisdom. So, it's got to match that. A word from God. And the moral is to act accordingly. So, that's the mental and moral thereby enabling one to cope with the enigma and adversity and enter into life. In this book, one may be clinically alive, that means physically alive, okay, and lack life. So we say people are spiritually dead, right? Are, are they physically dead? No. They're physically, or he says more clinically. Okay, they're physically alive, but they're spiritually dead. So, talking about the same thing. <clears throat> Wisdom based on knowledge of cause and effect relationships, Okay. This is the thing that I was referring to earlier about you cannot know absolutely without comprehensive knowledge. So without absolute certain knowledge, you cannot live skillfully. You need the revelation of God. This cause and effect relationship because you can't see it in the future. So we, we can't see exactly what that is going to spin off to or ripple out to become. Proverbs presents wisdom, chokmah, as rooted in God and the key to a successful and a righteous life. Okay? So, back to our verse. Um, 1, 2. Verse A, Proverbs 1, 2A. So, instruction. Instruction in righteousness, right? For the gaining of wisdom and being instructed. Okay, this is the word musar. It's 
um, a chastening lesson to correct a moral fault. Uh, Musark uh, connotes an authority, a parent, a sage, God, somebody, all right, to whom the discipline uh, disciple, I'm sorry, must submit himself. So you got to have humility to get this instruction. You got to be willing to be taught. You got to be a student. We're going to see that in a little bit with the son coming up. Not the son, but uh, his son, right? So um, you got to be willing to be a student and have humility to, to quit your waywardness. And so there's an aspect of shaping and molding your character. It is directly associated with the idea of reproof or the need to set things right, and the idea of Torah. Um, when we think of Torah, we, we think of law usually. But Torah is this educational instruction in the scripture. It's like uh, a catechism, catechesis, um, teaching and instructing so that they will grow into maturity and be followers of Yahweh. The idea, uh, I mentioned this in my earlier class today, but the idea of law that comes to most of our minds is not what is meant when they talk about Torah and law. So I, I tend to not use law because of that. Uh, it's instruction. It's education. So um, the insightful person uh, acquires instruction or musar through keen observation of and, and cogent reflection upon the suffering of others. All right? So you learn from them. So with the fool in their hard um, headedness, hard heartedness and, and stubbornness, refuses to correct themselves and ends up in, in a bad place, you learn from that. That's what's supposed to happen. Um, that then prevents acts of foolishness. Um, there's the repetition of this vicious cycle. So, so that's what that has to do with. All right? Um, the second part of the verse, okay, is the mental attributes. So for gaining wisdom and being instructed, okay, that's that's the first part. For understanding insightful sayings. So what's going on here is after the title, verse two is split in half, and then both of those halves, if you were to list them on the board, okay, if you were to put two A and two B. then the, the rest of it is going to fall under these. It's going gonna, it's gonna to divide back again. We're going to go back and talk about the moral and the mental after he lays out this, this heading. Okay? So the mental acumen again. Um, <coughs> the words. Okay, the words that we're talking about here. He says for um, understanding insightful sayings or words. Those can be written or oral. You can see that in the references that I have up on the, the board there. And then he talks about the idea of insight, understanding insightful sayings or insight. Um, that has to do with intellectual discernment through the senses and interpretation of it. So you're supposed to, you have to do this, like it's work. You got to wrestle with this. You got to think through this and, and see how these um, fit together. Um, does that make sense so far? We all on the same page? So there is um, a lot. We could spend like, I mean, we're, we're going to get out of the first seven verses shortly, but I mean, you could spend all your time like right here, just trying to understand what he's talking about with all these different words and, and how they relate to um, the rest of 
scripture. Let's go there. The idea of verses 3 through 5, okay? Now, they go back and they begin to unpack this first part. So this is the moral, right? And this is the mental. So 3 to 5 goes back here. 6 if we can go there. He says, for receiving wise instruction in righteousness, justice, and integrity, for teaching shrewdness from the inexperienced, knowledge and discretion from the young man, a wise man will listen and increase his learning, a discerning man will obtain guidance. And so here, he's talking about prudence. Prudence has to do with giving attention to a threatening situation. So, but you recognize that this is a threatening situation and you pay attention to it. Um, it's one of the things that you know, we're, we're trying to teach our, our son, like, this is going to lead to this. You know, but there's no kids like this. They don't think that way. They don't, they're just focused on right now, you know? And so you got to look at what's coming down the pike. Righteousness has to do with establishing a right social order according to God's word. <clears throat> Walke would argue that it entails disadvantaging yourself to advantage others. If you lock that in, that'll affect how you think about things. Um, that came to my mind even this morning. I was, I was up late last night, and um, I was finishing doing some of the, the slide stuff here, and so I, I didn't really want to get up at 5.30 um, when my wife gets up make breakfast before we walk. So, this ver that came back to my mind. So, I, I did try to stay in bed, but I couldn't stay, couldn't keep that up and obey the door. So, I got up anyway. <laughs> but, this idea of um, disadvantaging yourself to advantage someone else. If, if, if that's what righteousness is kind of about, living in a right way, then you can usually see what can be worked about it. What, what are we doing? We're disadvantaging someone else, but advantaging ourselves. So when, when people are stealing, what are they doing? They're disadvantaging somebody else for who for their own advantage. And the, the reverse of that, if we're humbly living before Yahweh, we're willing to disadvantage ourselves to advantage or advance them. Justice has to do with the idea of establishing right social order by punishing the oppressor and relieving the oppressed. This is why this whole, this whole idea of the whole snitch culture thing is a problem. Because what doesn't happen is the oppressor doesn't get punished, and the oppressed don't get relieved. So what are we doing? We're perpetuating injustice and oppression. Does that make sense? So when people are afraid to call the cops on injustice, okay, on crime, because they're then going to be bullied by other people. What, what, what is it? This is oppression that is continuing because justice isn't being served because people are afraid, right? And then the word uh, fair, upright, has to do with liberty within the law, freedom within a form, um, within the whole process. So that is um, 
that's verse 3. Verse, um, and that's all um, the student's perspective, okay? So it's from the student's perspective, those are the things, okay? Verse 4 and 5 is from the teacher's perspective, all right? So with a wise listen and retreat, discerning and obey, um, that should be simple. And I don't know what skillful is, but simple. The simple. What, what is the simple? Okay, I, we need to take um, a minute. I don't know if I have it here. Uh, I don't. It's further down somewhere. Yeah, it's way at the end. We talk about fools. Um, the simple person is someone that's gullible. They're easily pushed one way or the other. The simple person is not the worst person. Okay, the, the mockers are. The scorners are. The simple person... The positive side of that is they could be taught. They're easily persuaded either way. The question is who's going to get them? Are the mockers and the scorners going to get them? Or is Yahweh going to get them? Over time, eventually, they're going to end up probably on one or the other. Right? I don't think they're going to remain probably undecided forever. Um, it's possible. But they're uncommitted. They're simple-minded. Okay? They're easily persuaded. They're uncommitted, though. So they're open to everything and they're committed to nothing. That's problematic. I've got these teenagers that um, they come to Bible study at the apartment that we, we do. And uh, YouTube is the thing. Like, everybody's on YouTube. So they watch all these YouTube videos about all this controversial Christian stuff, like about Bibles and contradictions and this means this. And that. But the problem is they don't have a biblical foundation to understand it or to know what's right or what's not. So everything they hear, well, yeah, it sounds good. Like, that's why they put the video together. Like, they're trying to persuade somebody of something. They don't have the foundation to, to grapple with it. And so they're, they're pushed this way and that way. Like, oh, yeah, this sounds good. Yeah, I buy that. Uh, this, oh, yeah, I buy that one today. They need the foundation they don't have. Um, so then from there, he moves on. Um, the teacher's perspective, the simple, uh, the youth, and the wise. But I, I think I, I held my notes off on that until the end. About the fool. And how the fool plays a part in all this. The different words for fool. So I'm going to skip that for right now. Me, uh, verse 6 is the mental again. We're back at the mental acumen unpacked. And so he says, Understanding a proverb or a parable, the words of the, the uh, words of the wise, and uh, their riddles. And so uh, proverbs and parables uh, are used here. Um, kind of very similar to Proverbs. It asks its audience to make a, a, a critical judgment of their own behavior in, in light of you know what they see going on. Sayings of the wise and um, and the riddles. Again, these are these are similar uh, phrases, uh, potentially synonymous. All right. So, with that part being being read, okay, the that takes us back to this. The chiasm. Okay? You can see in here, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand, okay? Then you've got prudence here and here. To give prudence to the simple, to receive instruction in the prudence. You've got understanding up here, okay? Understanding here, understanding here. You have um, to know or knowledge uh, there and there. And that's how you, that's how these, the chiastic structure is built. You're looking for these, these parallel thoughts 
this and worthy to pray this, all right? Um, the pivot point for this, okay, is righteousness, okay? I don't know if this got pulled over when I converted this to an image or not, but this, this should be over here. So the pivot point in the middle of this chiasm is the moral communal virtues of righteousness, justice, and equity. All right? So what is it that Proverbs wants to teach us and to, to move forward on? To bring about what is right and harmonious for the community of God, all right? And it finds its basis in God's word and rule of the, of the world. So the idea of, of the rubber meets the road. Okay, Proverbs is about where the rubber meets the road. That we take the theology that we've learned, and then we actually live it out. Um, to be wicked isn't just about breaking the Ten Commandments, even though all these things I'm going to say are probably connected one way or another to the Ten Commandments. Um, for instance, murder isn't just about removing somebody's life. It's also about the failure to take care of an enemy. Right? What did Jesus teach us? That we should be to our enemies, right? Pray for them, feed them, right? So when you, when you begin to understand the, the full orb wisdom of God, it is much more uh, multifaceted than what you first think. Um, adultery is a failure to um, honor your noble wife. Your wife of Proverbs 31, right? So you have this, this act that's a, a crime or a sin, but you also have this other side of it that you're failing to do. So in your act of, of commission, you're also committing an act of omission. Uh, stealing. Okay, what, what is stealing? You take somebody else's stuff, right? So obviously you're breaking the whole disadvantage myself to advantage you. I'm doing the opposite. But on, on top of that, stealing is the opposite of, of, of being generous. So stealing is the failure to be generous. So if I steal from you, I, I'm, I'm not being generous to you. And what does the Bible teach us about God, right? It's a very popular song, our good, good father, right? So he is generous to us. He is long-suffering. He is compassionate. He is good. So the, the covenant-making Yahweh of the Bible teaches us that we don't just not steal, but we're generous. We're overflowing with generosity. Gossip. Gossip. It's not just you're spreading all this garbage about people. You're spewing stuff out. But it's a failure to cover over transgressions, which Proverbs 10, 12 teaches, as we see it again by 1 Peter, that love covers a multitude of sins. Right? So it's this failure, which I would also connect to this whole generosity thing, like you said. It's a failure to live out that generous life. So righteousness is, is what the center of this is all hinged on, that we will live in this, this covenant faithful way to God, who is the righteous judge, who is the righteous one. Jesus gives up his life to give life, to become poor, to make us rich. Like, that's our example. Can you imagine if each one of us actually lived that out, and each person that said they're a follower of Christ actually lived that out? Like, this isn't my opinion what the problem is. The problem isn't the world. Like, the world's always been the world. You know, dog bark, cast me out, right? The problem is that Christians don't live Yahweh's wisdom. Instead, we live the world's wisdom. When we're struck, we retaliate with him. Right? Instead of following the example of Scripture, of Jesus, who 
is wisdom and life, right? And um, Ecclesiastes, and I won't be offered the caveat there for this whole thing. Ecclesiastes 7, verses 16 and 18 says, Do not be over-righteous, neither be over-wise. Why destroy yourself? Do not be over-wicked and do not be a fool. Why die before your time? It is good to grasp the one and not let the other go. The man who fears God will avoid all extremes and his, his, his take on it. I always, I always struggled with that passage. Like, what is he saying? Like, don't be too good. Don't You know what I mean? So, whilst we were talking about uh, this, just trying to flesh out what it means, but he was talking about how one time um, there was a snowstorm because he was out shoveling. And when he finished shoveling, says, this passage came to his mind in Ecclesiastes about how we have to be careful of the extremes because eventually if you disadvantage yourself too much, like it's over with, you're done. And so anyway, his point is that there is a little bit of a balancing act uh, with this aspect because obviously if all you ever did was disadvantage yourself, I mean, probably would not have yet, right? And so how, how long do you go about shoveling, right? You know, you go four hours? I, I'm going to spend my whole day. I'm never going to get to work or whatever. So, all right. Does that all make sense to you guys? All right. Um, practical stuff when we, when we grasp it, when we start um, looking at it and thinking through this. So, all right, that's the key on this. So righteousness. Um, this is what I just talked about. All right, Thomas Key and Samson. Sorry, I should have had that up there when I was talking about it. Yeah. Well, it's about the righteous, okay? It protects from the world. In 13.6, it says, Righteousness guards the person of integrity, but wickedness overthrows the sinner. Okay? It promotes a relationship with God. The I am detests the way of the wicked, but he loves those who pursue righteousness. And it profits itself in Proverbs 21. Really, there's some benefits and aspects of pursuing the righteous life. <clears throat> the hermeneutical key of this is the objective revelation. Okay, so look in Psalm 19, verse 7. It says, "The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. And the ordinances of the Lord are sure." and altogether righteous. Now you read all that, and then I ask you, tell me in one sentence what you're saying. What's, what's going on in this passage? Notice all the, the parts in bold. Can you see them? See all those bold parts? Do you know that those are all basically referring to the same thing? So those are all synonyms. 
And they're all synonyms for what we're talking about. The law of the Lord, the statutes of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the commands of the Lord, the fear of the Lord. That one might strike us as not quite fitting in, right? The ordinances. So fear of the Lord here is lined up with God's teachings or commands or instructions, right? When you say commands, you might think Ten Commandments. The teachings, the Torah of the Lord is lined up with the fear of the Lord. And in Proverbs 2, it says, if you accept my words, you'll understand the fear of the Lord. So what, what are we getting at here? That if you accept my words, that's a revelation of God. So when we accept the revelation of God, you'll understand the fear of the Lord. And when you go back and look at that passage in Psalms, the fear of the Lord is completely related to the revelation. This is all the revelation of God. His laws, his statutes, right? They come from him. It's revelation. The only way we know him is he revealed them. So the revelation of God is connected to the law and the fear of God. Which is why it's the humble reception of God's law, God's revelation, that leads us onto the spirit of wisdom. Wisdom's instruction is to fear the Lord, and humility comes before honor, 15.23. The wages of humility, the fear of the Lord, are riches and honor and life. You see how they're connected, the fear of the Lord and the humility? The unified psychological poles of fear and love come prominently to the fore in a surprisingly uniform way. Deuteronomy treats love of the Lord and fear of the Lord as synonyms in Levitical passages. So, now when, when you talk about fear of the Lord, we often think of it as this abstract thing. Like, what, what is that? Like I said earlier, the law of awe, right? The fear of the Lord means to love God. Like, there, there is an awe aspect, right? Because he is so grand, so powerful, and so awesome, right? But the fear of the Lord, how do you know you fear God? Do you obey him? Well, why do you say that? Because those who love God do what? Obey him. What did Jesus say? This is how I'll know you love me, right? If you do what? Keep my commands, obey my commands, right? That's the, obey the law of the Lord. He's saying the same thing. That's like right out of the Old Testament. And we thought it was new in the New Testament. <clears throat> All right. According to Proverbs 2, 1 to 5, the fear of the Lord is found through heartfelt prayer and through diligent seeking for the sage's words. In 1533, humility and the fear are parallel terms, with, as we just saw. So, all right, does that all make sense to you? So bringing the law of all back in. When the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord. So there's the power of God, right? They see his power. They feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. You know, C.S. Lewis's line, The Witch in the Wardrobe, right? You, you most, yeah, you all know the quote probably, right? The children ask, is he safe? And the beaver says, of course not. Now, 
Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord, to walk in his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I'm giving you, say for your own good. Do you see how the, the, the fear of the Lord is connected to obeying and loving him? It's all connected together. This goes back to what we said way in the beginning, quoting, well, C.S. Eliot was quoted days in it, and then something else where we, we separate and dissect everything and want to compartmentalize everything. That's not how it is. It's all connected. That's why sometimes stuff doesn't make sense to us in the Hebrew Bible, because to them it was all together. They use ten different adjectives, and they're just talking about the same thing. They just need to love God. Obey Him. And, and we, we, you know, cast it all out to mean ten different things. That's part of the reason why theologians still argue over whether or not you're a, a body, soul, and spirit, or body, soul. You know? Are you, are you two, or are you three parts, right? So, I mean, I have my preference on it, but that part of the reason of the argument is because of the language of uh, the Hebrews and, and how they thought. They, they, even if they think there's three or two, they still viewed it as all as one. Like, you are you with all of it together. You know, not with just part of it. So you need all of it to be you. Without the I am's comprehensive knowledge, the finite mortal cannot attain to certain knowledge about what is good and bad by rightly relating all aspects of reality. Without revelation and inspiration, the finite mortal has only evaluations. That's it right there. Not certain values. Without God's revelation, the best you can do is the evaluations. That's it. Which is why the uh, what, what's the uh, what's the proverb that keeps a lot of vision perish? Anybody know it? Do you know what reference it is? Okay, what you know what I'm talking about. That, that's why that bugs me so much when they preach that on leadership and vision casting. It's not what it is. It's people without the revelation of God cast off restraint. I think that's how the NLT translates it. Without the revelation of God, you cast off restraint. You've got to have the revelation of God. Alright. So, um, with that said, let's look uh, briefly at this idea of the fool. In Proverbs. Okay? You have several different words used for fool. Okay? And are connected with the idea of fool. So, first you've got the simple or the gullible. We've already talked about them. Alright? They are the uncommitted. So, they're fair game. They can go either way. Then you've got the fool. The fool is committed. Okay? Not the Yahweh. They're committed against Yahweh. Stubborn opposition. The mocker takes it another step further. So I don't have the wise up here. We know what the wise person is, right? They're the one that's committed to God, right? They're following after his path. So the mocker is the opposite of the, of the wise. Okay, They're proud, they're arrogant, and they tear down what they don't accept. The sluggard is the lazy person. They're, they're opposite of diligent. They're unreliable, and they're a procrastinator. See, they don't want to do the work. They, they, they want to get their hands dirty. They, they don't want to do what it takes. And the senseless is the moral flaw in all the types of fools to one degree or another. They don't have sense. Well, where does sense come from? It's from God. It's because they are against God. They don't have it. And so that's what will happen. The, uh, the mocker and uh, the people that are completely antagonistic towards God... Wolski would argue, and, and I think I, pre I pretty much agree with him on this, is you don't bother trying to argue with them. You know what the Proverbs says to answer a fool according to his, his uh, 
then the next card's just like, dawn into a face. Up ah, forget what. Which number, I think it's like up to number nine or number ten. Um, these people that debate people like Hitchens and uh, Dawkins and, and this type of stuff. Yeah, I, I don't think there's much sense to any of it. Um, I think it's kind of like casting spells before swine. Like, these are not people that are simple, minded. Like, these are people that are hardened mockers, antagonistic towards God. Their desire is to tear down God's kingdom. Like, they're really not, um, you know, God, the, the best thing you can do for them is, is to pray for God to slice him or their heart before they die. Because otherwise they're, they're going to die in their sins. Like, that's, that's how they have set themselves in opposition to God. Like Pharaoh. until we're done with chapter 31, right? <laughs> Alrighty. Yeah. So, I think Wolf, Wolf, he has like, uh, I don't know, 25, 30 hours on Proverbs or something like that, of lessons. So, yeah, we get, I get three hours, a little less than three hours to cover. Um, but that's what a survey class is, right? Um, you know, it's high-flying. So we have to choose what we do. I don't know, another professor might have done more throughout. We're going to hit, hopefully, two... Yeah, we're going to have two or three other things um, in Proverbs, not just chapter 1. But So, let's move to, alright, so we want to move to the, the prologue, which is verses 8, chapter 8 to uh, chapter 9. Uh, Roland Murphy said, um, this is an imposing preface to the book. It is also quite unusual in that no other biblical work begins with a statement of purpose as clear as this one. In uh, the words of the uh, commentary on Proverbs. So we look at this, and so we're looking at verses 8 and following. And one of the questions that comes up is, to whom is this uh, written? So you look at verse 8, and he says, um, Listen, my son, to your father's instruction, and don't reject your mother's teaching. So I want to talk for just a minute about this idea of son. I alluded to this earlier. In the scriptures, we see the word son. Um, well, let, let me make a couple comments. One is that th this is mainly instruction set out for fathers to teach their kids. So that's why you're going to see father-son language pay off in here. But there's another aspect. Remember, Proverbs isn't written just for any father to his sons. Proverbs is about what? It's about the covenant community. And in the covenant community, who's the father? God is, and who's the son? Or more specifically, in this context, Israel. Right? So if you look back at passages relating to Exodus, it'll, call, it'll talk about how God has called his son out of Egypt. Who is God's son? Israel is God's son. Right? So when you look at the Proverbs then, you're looking at the fact that he's saying, listen, my son, to your father's instruction, and don't reject your mother's teaching. So, there is also this aspect that it's not only fathers, so there is a female aspect to this, even though the bulk of it is written in, in a male cultural society, so, you know, dads to their sons. But there's still women here. you got the woman wisdom in chapter 8, you got the, um, the bad woman, the adulterous woman in, in chapter 7. And then you got the wise woman in chapter 31, right? So <coughs> the, the, 
the sum, though, so for you and I, that's us. And so the question is, are we going to be a humble student coming under the word of God, under the revelation of God, listening to God's instruction through the Proverbs? continues on in verse uh, 9 he says for they will be a garland of grace on your head and a gold chain around your neck um, because this is probably connected to the Egyptian literature a garland in Egypt was a twisted wreath a symbol signifying victory and vindication over your enemies power and life prestige and high social status and the necklace in um, Egyptian symbol signified guidance and protection so high judges um would have this, etc. And so, what's he talking about here? That as we live our life, okay, listen, my son, to your father's instruction, and don't reject your mother's teaching. Instruction and teaching, okay, I think the one with uh, mother's teaching, I think that's the, the Torah again, so the educational teaching, okay, of, of your mother, your father's instruction, okay, and, and they're kind of in a parallel, synonymous type of relationship here. Those teachings are what's going to get you through life. That's going to be your crown, okay? Forget winning the, the victor's crown at some race or some trophy or the Super Bowl or whatever, right? No, the crown, the garland of grace on your head, the thing that's going to give you life is that teaching. Now, I'm not talking about any teaching. What teaching? The teaching of your parents that say, God, I'm Yahweh, the I am. That teaching is what's going to give you life and bring you life. And then from there, he moves on. And he talks about verses 10 and following. He talks about being enticed. My son, if sinners entice you, don't be persuaded. If they say, come with us, let's set an ambush and kill someone. Let's attack an innocent person just for fun. Let's swallow them alive like Sheol. Kill healthy as they go down in the pit. We'll find all kinds of valuable property. We'll fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot with us and we'll all share our money. Don't travel down that road or set your foot on that path. Because their feet run toward trouble. And they hurry to commit murder. It is foolish to spread a net where any bird can see it, but they can set an ambush and kill themselves. They attack their own lives, set to the paths of all who pursue gain dishonestly, and take the lives of those who profit from it. Now this is an interesting passage related to wisdom, because it's saying that, listen, if you're going to pursue this path, all the things we just talked about, you're cutting your own feet off from under you. You're killing yourself. Now, again, our young people, they don't, they don't understand this. And so, I teach my son. You've got to see a little bit further down. You're killing yourself if you commit these acts, if you pursue um, these things, you know, this, this violence, the bloodshed, the ambush, coldly calculating these things. Um, Sheol has to do with, with death, etc. And so, then wisdom speaks with him in verse 20. Wisdom calls out in the street. She raises her voice in the public square. She cries out above the commotion. Speaks of the interesting gate. So all these voices are crying out. Okay? Some people have said you've got the, the voice of God calling out to you, you've got the voice of the devil calling out to you. Well, here what we have is you're in the street, especially city, public square, it's noisy, there's a lot of commotion. It always has been, right? And who's crying out? Maybe wisdom. So what we need to learn is that wisdom is available. Is it hidden under a lock? Is it far from us? Do we need a lockbox? Do we have to have the code to it? No, this the code leads to God, right? out for everybody. How long, verse 22, foolish ones, will you love ignorance? How long will you mockers enjoy mockery and you fools hate knowledge? 
If you turn to my discipline, I will pour out my spirit on you, and I will teach you your words. Now, it does seem that in verse uh, 22, you know, it does seem like Elizabeth is still crying out for the mockers, you know. So maybe there are some limits, you know, in what I said earlier about what to do with the mockers, etc. But, <clears throat> there it is, crying out. They, they continue on. So I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to end the I'm going to end that section right there. the The idea here on, on uh, who is it written to a court setting or a home setting? Um, there's there's a debate in this passage. Some people think that um, like in Solomon's court, like the Egyptian court. Remember I showed you that scribe earlier from the Egyptian setting. That some people think that in Solomon's court there was really just people and they they sat around and and they wrote uh, proverbs and they they taught. They were sages. Men of wisdom in Solomon's court. And so, like, well, that's what they're building for. It's for the royal people. And they base some of that on um, Proverbs uh, 31 with uh, King Lemuel's uh, mother, you know, what he collected there. But um, probably a better argument is that it's actually for, um, for parents and instruction uh, with their children. So, that's kind of what, what that is about there. What I want to look at now is um, Proverbs 30. And um, I'm going to actually give you a handout for that. Kind of just walk through personal translation. Or you can can write all over that if you'd like. And the truth of the matter is, uh, really, primarily what we're accomplishing today is helping you get a little bit of a grasp about the wisdom literature, and Proverbs in particular, uh, so that hopefully that will go a long way towards helping you understand it as you read and study it on your own. Um, and, and hope, I don't know, I don't know if that's the, the best way of going about it or not, but hopefully it works. So, Proverbs 30. <clears throat> we are not going to go through this whole thing. We're primarily going to look at uh, the first six or eight verses or so. And we're going to see how this is related to wisdom and where we get wisdom from. The sayings of Agur, son of Zikr, or Zikr, an inspired utterance. This man's utterance to Ithiel, I am weary, God, but I can prevail. Surely I am only a brute and not a man. I do not have human understanding. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I attained to the knowledge of the Holy One. Who has gone up to heaven and come down? Whose hands have gathered up the wind? Who has wrapped up the waters in his cloak? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name, and what is the name of his son? Surely you know. Everyone is God's formless. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. 
Do not add to his words, or he will rebuke you and prove you a liar. Two things I ask of you, Lord. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood in my far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, Who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and say, Dishonor the name of my God. Okay. So, we look at this. Uh, this is the, the one chapter that is, this is not Solomon, it's not King Lemuel, it's Psalm, it's not collected by Hezekiah's men that Solomon wrote. Um, and so in this, in this section, we look at why, why might this be included in the scriptures, and what do we learn uh, from this passage? So the first thing is that uh, it's, in, it's in first person, okay, if you look at it. So you've got the title saying, okay, and then it says, I'm weary, but I can prevail. And so it's, it's kind of autobiographical. But then I want to point out several things in these verses. If you look at, he says, Surely I am only a brute and not a man, in verse 2. Then he says, I do not have human understanding. I have not learned wisdom, in verse 3, nor have I attained to the knowledge of the Holy One. Alright, so the first thing we learn there is that he doesn't know what? Psalm 18.30. What, what does he say in 
this proverb? He's saying that God has spoken in the Bible. Every word of God is flawless. So he's saying God has spoken and his words are true, right? This is the Proverbs quoting the Psalms, saying God has spoken. Then he says, don't add to his words or he will rebuke you and prove you a liar. That's a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 2, and chapter 13, verse 1. And here he's saying, that's basically that's the Bible of their day, right? So he's coming in with a little issue, and he's, he's coming in recognizing when we talk about wisdom. I don't have it. But who does have the answer? Well, God has the answer. And what do I need to do? I need to go to God in humility as the son, as the student, to the teacher, the father. And why? Because his words are flawless, and because we have revelation of God. So how do you know they have revelation of God? How do you know they have scriptures back then? He says, don't add to his words, and he'll rebuke you. He's quoted Deuteronomy. He's got Deuteronomy. He's got the law. He's got the Torah. He's got the scriptures. So we learn in this passage about this understanding of, of wisdom um, from Agur, a sage, a prophet, confesses his philosophy of knowledge to who knows, an unknown official named Hithiel, whoever that is. Um, and so that's what we learn from that. What um, Walsh summarizes that as, the first rung of the ladder is made from the stuff of human experience. He says, the first rung that we must climb is an honest confession that on our own, we, as mere mortals, cannot attain sure moral and social bliss. Then he says, the second rung, here's this little four-step ladder, I, I say four-step the second rung leading from moral and social incompetence to competence is made out of his cogent reflection on his confession that human beings on their own don't know how to behave. So these four questions. So we ha we have to come to God like admitting where we where we are with this that we lack the wisdom. What does James say? He says if we lack wisdom, ask, right? So it's very similar to of the lack of wisdom and the need for wisdom and how the Psalms uh, reflect, and, or not Psalms, sorry, the Proverbs reflect and demonstrate the existence of scriptures already in place and their view of, of those scriptures that are already in place. And you see how the aspects of the scripture um, correspond to each other. So, this, uh, the culture that, that we live in now, this idea of, of Postmodernism is where you know kind of anything can mean anything, um, that, but that's not what's going on in this passage. Now he realizes that he doesn't know. He realizes that he doesn't have the answers to this, but he knows someone who does. So there is an objective truth outside of himself. Okay. Um, any questions on that? The Proverbs thirty. No. All right. Um, Proverbs thirty one. You can look at it briefly. Um, I don't have a handout for you. You can look at it in your Bible. This is the epilogue. So this is the, the closing material. <coughs> Proverbs 31, verse 10 to 31. Um, looks like it's a chiastic structure. About, uh, you can see, 
both A and A prime, about the high value of a good wife. Um, you can see this is a very industrious woman. This woman who follows after God, this woman who has wisdom, this woman who submits herself to the teachings of Yahweh. Uh, she's industrious. If you know the Proverbs 31 at all, you know that um, she works. She is uh, making clothes. She's cooking. I mean, she's buying property. She is doing all sorts of things. So, Body 
wife or maybe a completely wise woman is, is a way that you could say it. So when you, when you look at this, <coughs> you see this, as I mentioned, she's not Irish. She's, she's Yoruba, that's the same. But one of the things is, if you look at the different aspects of what she's doing, these are things that are all talked about in the book of Proverbs. So we take all the things that, that wisdom says to use in our lives, and the book ends with this woman who is what? All of these things that wisdom is supposed to show in your life. Does that make sense? Right? So in the beginning, we're, we're told, hey, wisdom's crying out to you. Get wisdom. And, and wisdom is then personified as this woman. So get this woman, this lady wisdom, right? And this, this wisdom has been with God from the beginning um, and through which he created, right? The heavens and the earth. Get this woman. Get this wisdom, right? And then at the end we see this is what it looks like. When you have all this woman, all this, all this woman, when you have all this wisdom and it's been put into practice, right? This is what it looks like. And so one of the uh, questions we have to ask is, so Am I guaranteed that if I follow these proverbs, that's what my life will look like? And now we're kind of back to um, the retribution principle, which we didn't talk much about in, in Proverbs, but it is in the book of Proverbs also. Um, one of the discussions related to the re retribution principle and the idea of powers and whether or not they're promises <coughs> is, is how you um, concordate those together. A lot of people, uh, when you read the literature on, on powers, will say that um, they're not promises, but they're uh, principles that are generally true. Um, Walsky pushes a little bit back on that. I don't think he completely rejects it, uh, but he pushes back on, on the idea that that ultimately they are true. And so this goes back to definition of life. Are we talking about your physical life or are we talking about the more spiritual aspects of life and in the in the long run? And so the point with that is yes, yeah, so you implement and, and you follow through with God's wisdom, okay, and you're faithful to God. But you don't see all these blessings now. And the point is, but you will see the blessings. Because this life isn't the only life. So this isn't to like just spiritualize everything, but um, he would argue that that's actually part of the underlying message of not just Proverbs, but the, the rest of Scripture. That, like, this life is not the only life. So your blessings from, from God or your relationship with God is not only the here and now, but there's something more. Which is why if you take us back to um, Psalm 1, in the day of judgment, who will not stand? The wicked will but the righteous will, for the Lord watches over them. So there's more to it than just this life. So you're not promised, uh, I don't think, that everything is going to work out okay in this life. You are promised everything will work out, though. Because when this part is done, everything is righteous. Everything is just. Shalom really does exist. And so until we get there, our responsibility is to try to influence and bring that about as much as possible, but we may be taken out before that happens, and we will be, because it won't be 
Um, so I think that's part of, of what's going on. And that, that um, you know, opens up the door also for some of the messianic hope that is connected through some of uh, the proverbs. So you can use the, the term of son, for instance. So son is, is used of, of God calling Israel. But then um, when the prophets uh, talk about, I called my son out of Israel, or out of Egypt, I mean, I called my son out of Egypt, um, that is applied by Matthew to who? To Jesus. Okay? So now we got this imagery that uh, starts before Proverbs, but is now in Proverbs, and now that crops up or pops up again in the Gospels as applied to Jesus. So now you've got this kind of weird um, theological and even prophetic aspect that filters its way a little bit through the book of Proverbs as well. Does that make sense? I'm not saying that the Messianic Proverbs are just a Messianic psalm. I'm just saying that these themes, these ideas, um, get picked up and get expanded on later. Okay, just like the, the metaphor of the playbill. So, any questions? If not, we're done. So go forth and be wise.